0: Chapter Four of the Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Roger Moline. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Four. For a few minutes after finding the handkerchief at his door, Allan experienced a feeling of mingled curiosity and disappointment also a certain resentment. The suspicion that he was becoming involved in spite of himself was not altogether pleasant. The evening, up to a certain point, had been fairly entertaining. It was true he might have passed a pleasanter hour recalling old times with Stampede Smith, or discussing Cadiac Bears with the English Earl, or striking up an acquaintance with the unknown Greybeard who had voiced an opinion about John Graham. But he was not regretting lost hours, nor was he holding Mary Standish accountable for them. It was, last of all, the handkerchief that momentarily upset him. Why had she dropped it at his door? It was not a dangerous-looking affair, to be sure, with its filmy lace-edging and ridiculous diminutiveness. As the question came to him, he was wondering how even as dainty a nose as that possessed by Mary Standish could be much comforted by it. But it was pretty. And like Mary Standish, there was something exquisitely quiet and perfect about it, like the simplicity of her hair. He was not analyzing the matter. It was a thought that came to him almost unconsciously, as he tossed the annoying bit of fabric on the little table at the head of his berth. Undoubtedly, the dropping of it had been entirely unpremeditated and accidental. At least he told himself so. And he also assured himself, with an involuntary shrug of his shoulders, that any woman or girl had the right to pass his door if she so desired, and that he was an idiot for thinking otherwise. The argument was only slightly adequate. But Alan was not interested in mysteries, especially when they had to do with woman, and such an absurdly inconsequential thing as a handkerchief. A second time he went to bed he fell asleep thinking about Keok and Nahuatluk and the people of his range. From somewhere he had been given the priceless heritage of dreaming pleasantly, and Keok was very real, with her swift smile and mischievous face, and Nahuatluk's big, soft eyes were brighter than when he had gone away. He saw Tatuk, gloomy as usual, over the heartlessness of Keok. He was beating a tom-tom that gave out the peculiar sound of bells, and to this Amok Tuluk was dancing the bear dance, while Keok clapped her hands in exaggerated admiration. Even in his dreams, Alan chuckled. He knew what was happening, and that out of the corners of her laughing eyes, Keok was enjoying Tatuk's jealousy. Tatuk was so stupid he would never understand. That was the funny part of it and he beat his drum savagely, scowling so that he almost shut his eyes while Keok laughed outright. It was then that Alan opened his eyes and heard the last of the ship's bells. It was still dark. He turned on the light and looked at his watch. Tatuk's drum had tolled eight bells aboard the ship, and it was four o'clock in the morning. Through the open port came the smell of sea and land, and with it a chill air which Alan drank in deeply as he stretched himself for a few minutes after awakening. The tang of it was like wine in his blood, and he got up quietly and dressed while he smoked the stub end of a cigar he had laid aside at midnight. Not until he had finished dressing did he notice the handkerchief on the table. If its presence had suggested a significance a few hours before, he no longer disturbed himself by thinking about it. A bit of carelessness on the girl's part, that was all. He would return it. Mechanically, he put the crumpled bit of cambric in his coat pocket before going on deck. He had guessed that he would be alone. The promenade was deserted. Through the ghost-white mist of morning he saw the rows of empty chairs and lights burning dully in the wheelhouse asian monsoon and the drifting warmth of the japan current had brought an early spring to the alexander archipelago and may had stolen much of the flowering softness of june but the dawns of these days were chilly and gray mists and fogs settled in the valleys and like thin smoke rolled down the sides of the mountains to the sea so that a ship traveling the inner waters felt its way like a child creeping in darkness "'Allen loved this idiosyncrasy of the Alaskan coast. "'The phantom mystery of it was stimulating, "'and in the peril of it was a challenging lure. "'He could feel the care with which the gnome was picking her way northward. "'Her engines were thrumming softly, "'and her movement was a slow and cautious glide, "'cat-like and slightly trembling, "'as if every pound of steel in her were a living nerve widely alert.' He knew Captain Rifle would not be asleep, and that straining eyes were peering into the white gloom from the wheelhouse. Somewhere west of them, hazardously near, must lie the rocks of Admiralty Island, eastward were the still more pitiless glacial sandstones and granites of the coast, with that deadly finger of sea-washed reef between, along the lip of which they must creep to Juno, And Juno could not be far ahead. He leaned over the rail, puffing at the stub of his cigar. He was eager for his work. Juno, Skagway, and Cordova meant nothing to him, except that they were Alaska. He yearned for the still farther north, the wide tundras, and the mighty achievement that lay ahead of him there. His blood sang to the surety of it now, and for that reason he was not sorry he had spent seven months of loneliness in the States. He had proved with his own eyes that the day was near when Alaska would come into her own. Gold, he laughed. Gold had its lure, its romance, its thrill, but what was all the gold the mountains might possess compared with this greater thing he was helping to build? It seemed to him the people he had met in the South had thought only of gold when they learned he was from Alaska. Always gold, that first and then ice, snow, endless nights, desolate barrens, and craggy mountains frowning everlastingly upon a blasted land in which men fought against odds and only the fittest survive. It was gold that had been Alaska's doom. When people thought of it, they visioned nothing beyond the old Stampede days, the Chilkoot, Whitehorse, Dawson, and Circle City. Romance and glamour and the tragedies of dead men clung to their ribs. But they were beginning to believe now. Their eyes were opening. Even the government was waking up, after proving there was something besides graft and railroad building north of Mount St. Elias. Senators and congressmen at Washington had listened to him seriously, and especially to Carl Loman. And the beef barons, wisest of all, had tried to buy him off and had offered a fortune for Loman's 40,000 head of reindeer in the Seward Peninsula. That was proof of the awakening. Absolute proof. He lighted a fresh cigar, and his mind shot through the dissolving mist into the vast land ahead of him. Some Alaskans had cursed Theodore Roosevelt for putting what they called the conservation shackles on their country but he, for one, did not. Roosevelt's farsightedness had kept the body-snatchers at bay, and because he had foreseen what money power and greed would do, Alaska was not entirely stripped today, but lay ready to serve with all her mighty resources the mother who had neglected her for a generation. But it was going to be a struggle, this opening up of a great land. It must be done resourcefully and with intelligence. Once the bars were down, Roosevelt's shadow hand could not hold back such desecrating forces as John Graham and the syndicate he represented. Thought of Graham was an unpleasant reminder, and his face grew hard in the sea mist. Alaskans themselves must fight against the licensed plunderers, and it would be a hard fight. He had seen the pillaging work of these financial brigands in a dozen states during the past winter. States, raped of their forests, their lakes and streams, robbed and polluted, their resources hewn down to naked skeletons. He had been horrified and a little frightened when he looked over the desolation of Michigan, once the richest timber state in America. What if the government at Washington made it possible for such a thing to happen in Alaska? Politics and money were already fighting for just that thing he no longer heard the throb of the ship under his feet. It was his fight, and brain and muscle reacted to it, almost as if it had been a physical thing. And his end of that fight he was determined to win, if it took every year of his life. He, with a few others, would prove to the world that the millions of acres of treeless tundras of the north were not the cast-off ends of the earth. They would populate them, and the so-called barons would thunder to the innumerable hoofs of reindeer herds, as the American plains had never thundered to the beat of cattle. He was not thinking of the treasure he would find at the end of this rainbow of success which he visioned. Money, simply as money, he hated. It was the achievement of the thing that gripped him. The passion to hew a trail through which his beloved land might come into its own and the desire to see it achieve a final triumph by feeding a half of that America which had laughed at it and kicked it when it was down. The tolling of the ship's bell roused him from the subconscious struggle into which he had allowed himself to be drawn. Ordinarily, he had no sympathy with himself when he fell into one of these mental spasms, as he called them. Without knowing it, he was a little proud of a certain dispassionate tolerance which he possessed, a philosophical mastery of his emotions which at times was almost cold-blooded and which made some people think he was a thing of stone instead of flesh and blood. His thrills he kept to himself, and a mildly disturbing sensation passed through him now when he found that unconsciously his fingers had twined themselves about the little handkerchief in his pocket. He drew it out and made a sudden movement as if to toss it overboard. Then, with a grunt expressive of the absurdity of the thing, he replaced it in his pocket and began to walk slowly toward the bow of the ship. He wondered, as he noted the lifting of the fog, what he would have been had he possessed a sister like Mary Standish, or any family at all, for that matter, even an uncle or two who might have been interested in him. He remembered his father vividly his mother a little less so, because his mother had died when he was six and his father when he was twenty. It was his father who stood out above everything else, like the mountains he loved. The father would remain with him always, inspiring him, urging him, encouraging him to live like a gentleman, fight like a man, and die at last unafraid. In that fashion, the older Alan Holt had lived and died but his mother her face and voice scarcely remembered in the passing of many years was more a hallowed memory to him than a thing of flesh and blood and there had been no sisters or brothers often he had regretted this lack of brotherhood but a sister he grunted his disapprobation of the thought a sister would have meant enchainment to civilization cities probably even the states and slavery to a life he detested. He appreciated the immensity of his freedom. A Mary Standish, even though she were his sister, would be a catastrophe. He could not conceive of her or any other woman like her, living with Keok and Nowadlook and the rest of his people in the heart of the Tundras. And the Tundras would always be his home, because his heart was there. He had passed round the wheelhouse and came suddenly upon an odd figure crumpled in a chair. It was Stampede Smith. In the clearer light that came with the disillusion of the sea mist, Alan saw that he was not asleep. He paused, unseen by the other. Stampede stretched himself, groaned, and stood up. He was a little man, and his fiercely bristling red whiskers, wet with dew, were luxuriant enough for a giant. His head of tawny hair, bristling like his whiskers, added to the piratical effect of him above the neck, but below that part of his anatomy there was little to strike fear into the hearts of humanity. Some people smiled when they looked at him. Others, not knowing their man, laughed outright. Whiskers could be funny, and they were undoubtedly funny on Stampede Smith. But Alan neither smiled nor laughed, for in his heart was something very near to the missing love of brotherhood for this little man who had written his name across so many pages of Alaskan history. This morning, as Alan saw him, Stampede Smith was no longer the swiftest gunman between Whitehorse and Dawson City. He was a pathetic reminder of the old days when, single-handed, he had run down Soapy Smith and his gang— days when the going of Stampede Smith to New Fields meant a stampede behind him, and when his name was mentioned in the same breath with those of George Carmack and Alex MacDonald and Jerome Chute and a hundred men like Curly Monroe and Joe Barrett set their compass by his. To Allen, there was a tragedy in this aloneness as he stood in the gray of the morning. Twenty times a millionaire, he knew that Stampede Smith was broke again. "'Good morning,' he said so unexpectedly that the little man jerked himself round like the lash of a whip, a trick of the old gun days. "'Why so much loneliness, Stampede?' Stampede grinned wryly. He had humorous blue eyes, buried like an Airedale's under brows which bristled even more fiercely than his whiskers. "'I'm thinking,' said he, "'what a fool thing is money. Good morning, Alan.' He nodded and chuckled, and continued to chuckle in the face of the lifting fog, and Alan saw the old humor which had always been Stampede's last asset when in trouble. He drew nearer and stood beside him, so that their shoulders touched as they leaned over the rail. "'Alan,' said Stampede, "'it ain't often I have a big thought, but I've been having one all night. Ain't forgot Bonanza, have you?' Alan shook his head. As long as there is an Alaska, we won't forget bonanza, Stampede. I took a million out of it, next to Carmack's discovery, and went busted afterward, didn't I? Alan nodded without speaking. But that wasn't a circumstance to Gold Run Creek over the divide, Stampede continued ruminatively. Ain't forgot old Alec Macdonald, the Scotchman, have you, Alan? In the wash of 98 we took up seventy sacks to bring our gold back in and we lacked thirty of doing the job. Nine hundred thousand dollars in a single clean-up, and that was only the beginning. Well, I went busted again, and old Alec went busted later on, but he had a pretty wife left, a girl from Seattle. I had to grub-steak." He was silent a moment. "'caressing his damp whiskers as he noted the first rose-flush of the sun "'breaking through the mist between them and the unseen mountain tops. Five times after that I made strikes and went busted,' he said a little proudly, "'and I'm busted again.' "'I know it,' sympathized Alan. "'They took every cent away from me down in Seattle and Frisco,' "'chuckled Stampede, rubbing his hands together cheerfully.' And then bought me a ticket to nome. Mighty fine of them, don't you think? Couldn't have been more decent. I knew that fellow cop had a heart. That's why I trusted him with my money. It wasn't his fault he lost it. Of course not, agreed Allen. And I'm sort of sorry I shot him up for it. I am, for a fact. You killed him? Not quite. I clipped one ear off as a reminder down in Chink Hollerin's place. Mighty sorry, didn't think then how decent it was of him to buy me a ticket to Nome. I just let go in the heat of the moment. He did me a favor in cleanin' me, Alan. He did, so help me. You don't realize how free and easy and beautiful everything is until you're busted." Smiling, his odd face almost boyish behind its ambush of hair, he saw the grim look in Alan's eyes and about his jaws. He caught hold of the other's arm and shook it. "'Alan, I mean it,' he declared. "'That's why I think money is a fool thing. "'It ain't spendin' money that makes me happy. "'It's findin' it. "'The gold in the mountains. "'That makes the blood run fast through my gizzard. "'After I've found it, I can't find any use for it in particular. "'I want to go broke.' If I didn't, I'd get lazy and fat and some newfangled doctor would operate on me and I'd die. They're doing a lot of that operating down in Frisco, Alan. One day I had a pain and they wanted to cut out something from inside me. Think what can happen to a man when he's got money." You mean all that, Stampede? On my life I do. I'm just aching for the open skies, Alan. The mountains. AND THE YELLOW STUFF THAT'S GOING TO BE MY PLAYMATE TILL I DIE. SOMEBODY'LL GRUB-STAKE ME IN NOME. THEY WON'T, SAID ALLEN SUDDENLY. NOT IF I CAN HELP IT. STAMPEDE, I WANT YOU. I WANT YOU WITH ME UP UNDER THE Endicott MOUNTAINS. I'VE GOT TEN THOUSAND REINDEER UP THERE. IT'S NO MAN'S LAND, AND WE CAN DO AS WE PLEASE IN IT. I'M NOT AFTER GOLD. I WANT ANOTHER SORT OF THING. "'but I've fancied the Endicott Ranges are full of that yellow playmate of yours. "'It's a new country. You've never seen it. "'God only knows what you may find. Will you come?' "'The humorous twinkle had gone out of Stampede's eyes. "'He was staring at Alan. "'Will I come? "'Alan, will a cub nurse its mother? "'Try me. Ask me. Say it all over again.' The two men gripped hands. Smiling, Alan nodded to the east. The last of the fog was clearing swiftly. The tips of the cragged Alaskan ranges rose up against the blue of a cloudless sky, and the morning sun was flashing in rose and gold at their snowy peaks. Stampede also nodded. Speech was unnecessary. They both understood and the thrill of the life they loved passed from one to the other in the grip of their hands. End of chapter 4. Recording by Roger Moline.